Hi, this is Dana Gould, and you're listening to New Dissident Radio, where we've finally gotten the video out of audio video. This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream.
everyone. Uh, that was a band called Tin Pan, and the name of the song was called South. And I'm just getting my levels here going because I haven't been here in about a week. And, you know, it always takes me a few minutes to get my fucking levels together. Oh, there I am. Okay. Uh, so I was in New York last week, and uh, as one does, well, what I do, I always go to Central Park and walk around because Central Park is central and <laughs> I like staying in Midtown. So I was walking uh, up the mall of Central Park last week and this band, uh, Tin Pan Band, was playing in the mall with, you know, jazz guys and all sorts of other people. And they were putting on a fucking show. They were like entertaining on the mall. And uh, of course I listened because I'm a huge fan of this kind of music. And uh, I'm always looking for uh, bands I can play on here, and uh, they were great guys. So you can find them at uh, tinpanband.com, of course, and I just they wanted me to make a shout-out today. They're having a CD release party coming up on June 6th at Joe's Pub, which is part of the public theater there in New York, and uh, so that's that. Oh, and the, and the song I played is called South, which I wanted to play it today um, to just kind of honor the people of... Uh, lower Mississippi, who are dealing with a huge bit of water, <laughs> to say the least. And of course, if you notice, the song really isn't about going south. It's it's about sexual things, you know. So um, I also want to put it out there for everyone who likes to either have someone go down on them or likes to go down on their lady. That's very nice of you. Uh, so anyway... <laughs> uh, just wanted to talk a little bit about my trip to New York last week. It was... I'm calling it the comedy cavalcade. As you, my listeners know, uh, I didn't really know any comedians before my father died. And now I have them everywhere in my life. And it's fantastic. And it's helping me heal, obviously. And uh, it's teaching me a lot. And I've got some great new friends. So I was hanging out with comedians all last week. And my friend Rick Overton was in town. And uh, he's uh, friends with Robin Williams, and we were going to go see Robin's play on Broadway together. So we went to Serafina's for dinner, which is this place on Broadway. And let me tell you, the weather last week in New York was fucking phenomenal. I don't think I've ever been in New York when it's 65 degrees, zero humidity, and everything is blooming. Columbus Circle, the tulips were all blooming. It was, it was, it was a form of nirvana. So we're sitting out there on Broadway. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm meeting up with all my comedy friends. I'm having coffee with this person and that person and this person. And so Rick and I are, <laughs> are eating dinner, minding our own business on Broadway, watching the tourists walk by and listening to the jackhammering because it, it, it is Broadway. And uh, who walks in to the area, where, the patio, we're just sitting there on the street, and sits right down next to us but Jackie Mason. Fucking Jackie Mason. My dad was a huge fan. And uh, the thing about Jackie Mason for me is I always think he's doing a character, but he's not. He's just being Jackie Mason. And so I, after about halfway through my meal, I got up and I introduced myself. Because my dad was a huge fan. He would go and sit in the audience and, and cry with Jackie and um, introduce myself. And Jackie started doing Jackie Mason to me. And it was just this weird fucking synchronicity again. I was just like, okay, comedian number 64 this week already. So uh, I don't know. I just I had a great time in New York. Uh, hopefully some good news will come out of it. We recorded for XM Sirius uh, some interviews. Uh, they're going to be doing a, a tribute to my dad next month. Uh, next month will be the three-year anniversary of my dad's death. So they're doing a little tribute to my dad because it's also the 40th year of the recording of FM and AM, the anniversary. And uh, 
that's uh, pretty amazing, actually. So anyway, that's my little thing today. Oh, I have one more thing. I just want to say, I don't know if I'm, what I'm more excited about, the possible rapture happening on Saturday or the fact that Oprah Winfrey's finally going to be off the fucking TV, at least that one channel and that one thing. And I, I don't know if they have anything to do with each other, but uh, I think they do in my own sick little mind. All right. So on to my guest, because I want to get to my guest. Uh, so the first time I saw my guest, who you know who he is, Mr. Mark Marin, I saw him at a Satirista's book launch show. Uh, Provenza booked him on this show, and I didn't like it. I said I didn't know comedians, and Provenza's like introducing me to all these people. And Mark gets on stage, and uh, I realize, I, I think to myself, wow, uh, this is the smartest man in the room. Oh. Uh, really, I swear. And I'm think, And this is the kind of thing, like when I see people like you, I go wow, this guy reminds me of my dad because there's a lot going on. There's like not only the personal vulnerability and the jumping off the cliff and over the edge constantly, but you fucking got shit going on in your head on like 25 different layers and your use of language and just everything. It was just so fucking beautiful. And I, um, uh, I got a chance, we got a chance to uh, perform together at a little benefit for the Peace and Freedom Party. Yeah, what's left of the Peace and Freedom Party? I think there's seven of them and four of them are 70. <laughs> well, and that's kind of like the audience was like, oh, it's it's really is the aging hippie audience, oh, isn't it? It, it? it was the original <laughs> aging hippies. It was like the people that invented the hippies. It, it was, it was. And I felt like, and I did a piece about my dad in the First Amendment, and I thought, well, this audience will get it, sure. because they were actually living yeah, it, weren't yeah. they? Yes. And, uh, and um, oh, what else do I just want to say here, because we're already talking, but... Uh, oh, did I jump in? No, 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 you're great, you're great. Mm. Uh, the thing I wanted to say was that, and we said it a little bit before we went on the air here, was that I've been reading about you and, you know, filling up my brain with all Mark Maron stuff this today, which oh, I'm could, sorry. I, well, I will have, oh. to, I will have to go to therapy tomorrow now. You, yes, you can will. I just bill you for that? Or? Sure. Okay, yeah. good. That's good. Uh, but the whole thing about, uh, just wanting to have authentic conversations with people mm-hmm. and, uh, God, it's just, it's, uh, I just love that. I was just like, okay, cool. No matter what Mark and I are going to figure out <laughs> whatever that means, having an authentic conversation. We're already today. having it. I know we are. I, I mean, I watched an interview with, uh, Keith Richards yesterday that was done at the New York public, uh, library. Uh-huh. And I, I don't remember who the, the the guy who interviewed him was, or and I'm sure he is a guy. I'm just not sure who he was or right. what his position is. But I got so frustrated because he would what he would do. He would answer a question, sort of like you and Mick have had a lot of trouble over the, your career. There's been a lot of um, tension, but you know the band still goes on. And you know recently you had this and that. Will you speak about that a little bit? <laughs> I'm like, what is that? <laughs> What is, okay, so you answered the question. You didn't ask a question other no. than would you talk about what I just explained? And I was going nuts. I mean, I, and then, yeah, of course, Keith is, is, is sitting there going, uh, uh. <laughs> yeah, He barely speaks English as it is. But, but he's a very intelligent, uh, erudite guy, it turns yes. out, after reading that book. But, but he was just in this position to where it wasn't a conversation, and he was sort of put on the spot with these vague, broad kind of, would you speak about that? <laughs> would you speak to us about your... Right, as opposed <laughs> to just saying, so, dude, what the fuck is up What's with up that? What's up with that, exactly? And, and he goes, I don't know, man. And, you know, <laughs> And then you're like, exactly. So did that do that? Like, 
start the conversation. Right. You know, throw something in the water and see if right. it floats or not. Right. And there was the pressure of the audience and everything else, but I, but it's still, you're better off doing something organic than being nervous and having someone, could you speak to that or yeah. about that or whatever? Well, and that's that, you know, kind of that New Yorky journalistic literary group there. That's true. You, you know, they're, they, they need to feel like they're the most important, smartest person in the room when they, yeah, because no one honestly gives a shit about them. I mean, the weird thing about, <laughs> about academics and about that, uh, that elite group of intellectuals is it's such a rarefied universe. Yep. And, and I think it's important, uh, but I'm one of the few. And we all think it's sort of important because it's good that they're out there. Thank but, God. Yeah. Someone's doing it. Yeah. But I, in, 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 for most practical purposes, their, their relevance is limited to academia and their, and their careers are limited to, to these academic circles. So until they learn how to talk effectively to us working people, <laughs> uh, it's, it's going to be a little tedious. I couldn't, that guy who brought him up took five minutes. He was just milking it, you know, you know building up this intro. It's I like, get it off. Was- I think I might know who this guy is. Really? Does he run the New York Public Library yeah, he's director? Like a, like a Dutch name or yes, something? Yes, we did we did a tribute to my dad there last year and we worked with him. How long was that intro? <laughs> it was pretty long. I'm like, we we get it. We're we're not gonna remember you when you're done saying this. So why don't you tighten it up a little? So at least we can at least respect you for not taking up so much fucking time. Was he was he a pompous You know? Not, not in like an overtly way, but, right. but you know how they carry themselves. They're, you know, they're ra- library guys. They're kind of rarefied air. You know, I'm sure he went to Oxford or something sure. lovely like that. I guess I do have an envy of that anyways. I yeah, do there's, too. There's something about my having to construct uh, whatever intellectual capacity I have out of, you know, <laughs> bits and pieces of things <laughs> I picked up over the years without ever able, I was never able to contextualize anything. I was amazed that I got a degree at all, but, uh. But I've had to sort of scrap it together and realize that you know, I'm not in any way a trained intellect and I just have to go by my instincts. Well, I can so relate to that because I, I went to grad school and got my master's in, what? in Jungian depth psychology. Holy shit. Yeah. You got your master's in the collective unconscious? I did. So you can walk down the street and identify archetypes yes. you know, if you have your eyes closed? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Wait, it's all a mandala. Don't you get it? What? Sorry, it's my graduate work in Jungian <laughs> mysticism. I'm individuating. Leave me alone. Oh, boy. <laughs> but the whole thing is like, you know, a part of me being an intellectual and, you know, kind of having that brain genetically put yeah. in, put into my brain, into my mind, no matter what, uh, you know, part of me really wanted to be a part of that world. And I, you know, I'd always wanted to like, wish I'd gone to one of the Ivy League schools in my undergrad and my SATs were horrible and I couldn't get in. And, and part of me loves that, like, you know, secure little warm space where we can talk about the most obscure little aspects of Jungian therapy or the arc, or whatever it is. Yeah, but, mis- then, but then you get into infights with other Jungian <laughs> therapists. Yes. And then all of a sudden, like all those, like, you know, this wonderful embracing sort of environment where you can, you know, uh, speculate about Jung's influence on current <laughs> politics and current psychological trends becomes sort of like, I disagree with paragraph seven of your paper. <laughs> On what evil is. And then, and then that goes on for years. Uh, truly, truly. And the other thing, too, is that they no, nobody has a sense of humor in that world. Yeah. And a part of me just wants to do a pratfall and, and kind of be silly. I mean, yeah. I've got that part of me, too. So always I'm like, I feel like I'm like, you know, Sybil or something. I've got the, the, the Lucille Ball part of me, you know, and then I've got this kind of 
person who just wants to be literally in an ivory tower. And- well, I, I realize at some point that I, I'm not cut out for it. I, I could never – I have a very hard time compartmentalizing anything. You know, it, that includes a, a degree mm. or like I, a lot of people in their lives are able to sort of work towards something and, and build within the context of that process, mm-hmm. whereas everything's always coming at me all at once. <laughs> and I just – I take what I can and then, you know, the, the context is me. So I, I can't uh, claim to be a, a real intellectual of any kind. I, I'm sort of – I'm no longer fraudulent uh, because I will admit that I don't know things. Yeah. And I will not drop names or, of things or paintings or poets or philosophers <laughs> of people I don't understand or have not uh, at least developed an opinion on. I made those rules for myself. That's, that's probably a good thing to live by. Yeah. Well, you don't want to be a pompous asshole and then be proven to be shallow. <laughs> There's nothing worse than being called on bullshit. I mean, if you're a really good bullshitter, you can get away with it until you really talk to somebody who knows what the fuck yeah. they're talking about. And then all of a sudden you're like, I, I don't know. You're right. Yeah, I gotta go. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah, yeah. Here's my pen. I don't know what I'm talking yeah. about. Uh, does this time, I was reading your book today, which by the way, I love your writing. Oh, thank you. I want you, will you write, are you writing another book? Yes, you- I, I am. I am in, in the process of, uh, of collating ideas and thoughts to write a book that I have to write because I've just done a a deal to write one. Excellent. And I'd forgotten, you know, the discipline of it and, and how, how insane I was during that because a lot of that was taken from the one person show, mm-hmm. which was really only probably about 40 or 45 pages and then just sort of building on that. Right. Uh, I find that to write, I need to, to start from things I've said. Yes. And I need to have that tone to my writing. So basically the process that I go through to write anything is I record myself on stage talking and then uh, I have someone transcribe it. And then I look at how the, the rhythm of it works. Because if I was just left to write, I would overwrite. Mm-hmm. And, and I would overthink it. Mm-hmm. So if I have the core of, of what I'm writing about, something I said before, then I, I feel my voice in it. My yeah. voice is still one that's spoken. So I have to figure out how to write like that. Yeah, it's interesting because I uh, do personal essays. Mm-hmm. And I find that when I when I write to write, like I started writing a memoir five years ago and I really overwrote it. Mm -hmm. And yet if I write knowing that I'm going to perform the essay and it's going to be 10 or 12 minutes or whatever, this other tone shows up for me. And I, 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 and I love that tone. Your your authentic tone that you speak with. Yeah. And it's one that's, that doesn't take myself so seriously. That's not bogged down by like thinking I need to write the 200 page version of this. Right. You know, it's got a, it's, it's, it's got a, like a a container within it because maybe I'm talking about a particular event or a theme around my life and then have a few events in it. And, And so I, I do. I, I, I don't do what you do, which is speak it and then transcribe it. But I do write for performance. And yeah, I, I, I understand that. It's it just it, what's interesting to me about about writing is that left to my own devices, because we have this chip on our shoulder that we're, we're not intellectuals, there's going to be that that compulsion <laughs> to sort of like philosophize and get too elaborate and too, uh, yes. uh, you know, too metaphorical, you know, you know, adding words and descriptions, where some of my favorite writers are very simple. Yep. I mean, I read Philip Roth, no matter what he writes, even if he's just writing to know he's alive at this point, <laughs> I read him because <laughs> it's so simple and it's so filled with a, a, a strange, dark, emotional tone that that I can't stay away from it. So a lot of what impresses me when I read has nothing to do with with uh, verbal fireworks as much as it has to do with uh, emotional impact, you know, within the page. Right. And, and 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 that's that's good for me. I just yeah. have to stay within those uh, parameters, and I'll be all right. Oh, one of the things I loved when I was reading today was I was seeing that you, 
and I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but it came clear to me because it's something I love to play with too, which is especially in this in this particular book, Jerusalem Syndrome. Yes, the only book. Yeah, the only book is that you are looking for meaning in your life. Yeah. And you, you're, you're, you're taking us and you're looking for meaning. And sometimes you take us along a, an event and you're writing in a certain way that's got a certain lusciousness to the real language. And then you just literally grab us, throw us back down to earth, and you've got to pee or something or yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And I love that because I, I know for myself, I... I love playing with the kind of the sacred and the profane all the time and, and reminding my own self, and I think this is probably a human thing, or at least some humans, we realize we are both kind of sacred beings and I, I have to shave my fucking legs twice a week, you sure. know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yet I can feel like I'm at one with the universe at times too. Yeah. Well, a the universe has to shave its legs. Well, <laughs> clearly through me because uh, I am the universe. That's right. <laughs> yeah, now we're getting all Jungian and shit. <laughs> It's all one big vibration, man, with a lot of colors and round things that uh, sort of represent other things. It, always. Everything represents everything else. Yeah, it, I think that's what it comes right down to. I don't worry about it as much as I used to. I've never been on a spiritual quest for, for, uh, for meaning. I've never pursued God in any way. Mm -hmm. I, I was one of these people that was not uh, – I, I never was taught how to use God, so it was never really an issue for me. Right. I, I think that – you know, being a Jew and being a conservative Jew that, you know, you, you knew God was around or at least people talked about him when you went certain places. But unless somebody actually puts the fear of God in you, he's of no purpose, really. And, and, <laughs> and you know, it's just this intangible thing. So I never had to really confront, a, you know, a lapse of faith or, or, or even a, a quest for God because mm -hmm. I was never taught to, to integrate it into my being as anything uh, important. Yeah, yeah. It's a relief, but because of that, you know, I'm a very good consumer because I need things right. uh, to fill the hole. I mean, I'm not saying the hole doesn't exist, but right. it, it never appeared to me to be a God-shaped hole. It seems like there's a lot of things I can fill that thing with at least halfway or a third of the way. That'll make me feel okay enough to go on another day. Well, and, you know, as the Zen, I study Zen stuff, too. And, That's you know, practical. The, the Zen people will tell you, you know, even if you fill it up with something shaped like God, it's still just a concept yeah. of, you know, you talk about it a lot, the idea of God. It's yeah. still just the idea. Yeah. Um, but there's a couple, and I'm about halfway through the book, there's a couple of times where you actually uh, describe an experience where you have an experience of the transcendent up in Alaska yeah, and, yeah. And, a, and a couple other times and then certainly uh, on drugs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you, um, th that experience of the transcendent, how do you hold that in your scheme of understanding of things? Well, I think that there's a tone and I was thinking about it yesterday that, you know, I talk about a tone in, in the book where there a certain longing or a melancholy or something that is brought on by, by a certain type of weather or a certain chord progression in a song that seems to take you to a different place. Mm. Uh, and I'm not one that I can't pathologize everything and break it down to brain chemicals because those people, <laughs> it's like, it's all I brain chemicals. It. Love is all brain chemicals. They're, 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 we're wired a certain way for evolution or for this or that or for adaptation or for survival and everything can be traced to these, you know, these dopamine and neurotransmitters right. and everything else. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's true, but that does not negate the poetry of life yep. and, and how you engage or what those feelings are attached to in your heart and your mind. So there were times that the, the original feeling of, of, of grayness or that I talk about in the book or being overwhelmed with a, a type of, of almost melancholy elation mm. used to be fairly effectively brought on by certain songs mm. and by a certain type of chord progression or a certain tone to music and also, uh, you know, a certain... 
uh, you know, feeling of longing for, mm. for, for something that I couldn't quite define, mm. but, but I wasn't really longing because I enjoyed the feeling of that. Yeah. that and, I, and I think that that's a human thing too, that, you know, you can put a face on any, any of that and say like, what am I longing for? But, but also just the, the existential longing is, is sort of uh, profound and, and I think very human. And, and I feel it, I tried to, I tried to recapture it every, every so often and by putting those songs on, because there were moments where that stuff happened where I'm like, this is great. It's, it's just sort of a, a, a landscape that I can't even quite define, but I know I'm, I'm being transported somewhere and I don't try to explain it too much more than that. Right. Right. And as far as synchronicity and, and, and things that happen to me on drugs or, or things that seem to transcend, uh, um, uh, common experience. I, I read Jung's book on synchronicity and, and I tried to sort of wrap my brain around it. And then there's people, <laughs> the rationalists will say, well, if you look at the numbers, right. the possibilities of you running into that person because of geographical location <laughs> and the, you know, the blocks that you tend to you know, shop at the same place and all that. I'm like, why is what, such a fucking buzzkill? All right. Maybe you're right. <laughs> maybe you're right. But if I choose to think it's something more than that because I've I've hung a little meaning on it and it makes me go a different place in my brain, I'm going to do that, Mr. Math. (laughs) Mr. Reasonable Rationalist Man. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind Uh, that, but I find 90% of the time those people are are horrendous control freaks who need to be right constantly. And, And I think that it is... Uh, it, it, obviously I'm more of a, a person who's, who enjoys abstraction. I enjoy the power of poetry. I enjoy a turn of phrase or, or, or a combination of words that, that you know, presents that moment, that, that, that transcendent moment of, of longing or understanding. Or, or if you read a poem and all of a sudden everything makes sense for a few minutes and you can get that again and again when you go back to it, mm-hmm. I like that feeling. I'm, I'm surprised you're not Irish. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do have that darkness. Yeah, there, there is. But that's a, the Jewish-Irish thing, I think. There's a little, that's the commonality I think we share. Is yeah, that, well, the That Jews, melancholy kind of that place. Well, yeah, a Jew would say, stop complaining. The Irish would say, I'm not complaining. I'm a romantic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My weeping is good for me. Yeah, yeah. This is what I earned. <laughs> this is our history. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I Melancholy's always been a big thing in my life. And uh, it's you know, I mean, like from a psychological family dysfunction point of view, I think I kind of held the sadness for my family because my mom was, uh, until I was 12, was a, was drunk. And my dad was uh, changing and crazy and on the road and doing a lot of drugs and things like that. And I think I was the only child trying to keep it all together. And and they always say the kid kind of holds the shadow of the parents. And and so for me, I've always had like that longing, that melancholy thing. And 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 it was interesting because my dad, who was very compartmentalized psychologically, he had it too. Like he would put on a certain song, mm-hmm. or and he would cry. Or when we went to River Dance, I'll never forget this. We're at River Dance the very first time we see it, and they come out the very first big opening thing. <laughs> They're not on stage 30 seconds. My dad's sitting in front of us with my mom and my husband and I are sitting there and he turns around to me and we're both weeping, just weeping. And so my dad had it like that, but I, I find I, I do that like all day long. Like the shit will hit me and I'll just be, I'll fall apart. You know? Yeah, well, I, I don't know if that's a, that's a, uh, I mean, maybe a I need, maybe be. I need medication. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I've thought of that too, I, but I think that being heavy hearted, uh, and, and acknowledging that, I, I mean, that some people just have that sadness. I mean, yeah. my father was, a and is bipolar mm. and my mother's kind of a, her own style of freakiness, but, but there is, 
Like I've, a couple of things, and in, in, you know, talking about carrying the shadow, I've always been a, a shadow boxer. So I right. like, even though I carry the shadow, I fight it within myself, mm-hmm. and and a lot of that struggle ends up on stage with me. And and I think also in terms of river dancing, I am overwhelmed. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a musical guy, mm-hmm. but if somebody is singing or somebody is dancing uh, on stage, and, and and certainly if there's many of them, it, the to me, it's such a it's such a vulnerable place, and I have to assume that to your father on some level, you know, co- you know, comedians really try to control why people laugh at them. Yeah, Harry Shearer <laughs> said that to me that's that great. that's why we do it, that's and that beautiful. you know we are singular, and we you know it is a control thing. We're trying to to preemptively disarm pain mm-hmm. and and any sort of attack, you know, by having a sort of uh, a one up kind of thing, you know, prepared with the joke, with yes. our understanding. The shield. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but also it's a way of understanding. Yes. There's a poetry to jokes. Absolutely. You know, that we're, we're trying to figure things out for ourselves and hopefully that resonates with other people you know, with the power of humor. But when you see, if I see somebody singing mm. or playing an instrument beautifully mm. and I see, if I see a lot of people dancing, I'm going to start bawling just because I'm like, oh my God, that's so human and yeah. so immediate and something I could never feel comfortable doing. <laughs> I mean, especially river dancing. I mean, that, that you know, to me, even I don't come from from any of that type of past, but to see that many people doing something relatively complicated yes. and uh, Celtic at that, right? Uh, is, is and the just melancholy tonal and the bead and all of it, and you're just yeah, it's yeah. very overwhelming. I I, yeah. I just find that when I when I see like I get very moved. I get moved more now, mm-hmm. even in conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even in you know sitting talking to Jonathan Winters or something mm-hmm. who is. Uh, you know, one of the great uh, heavy-hearted people, mm. and uh, and being so wired for that. You know, having a father who's a depressive. Yeah. You know, I'm wired to engage yeah. with with any sort of depression immediately. I'm like, Daddy, <laughs> and, and you know, and I'm, I'm there. I'm 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 of service in the immediate sense. Right, yeah. right. Hit, hit the vibration level. You oh, can oh, yeah. sync up with it perfectly. Oh yeah, yeah. And that's a, that's what makes me very uh, you know able to engage with a lot of the people that I interview on my show. It's like, <laughs> underneath all of us is that thing, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Now you're. Uh, how long have you been doing comedy? I've been doing comedy, you know, professionally since 1988. Yeah, I think the first time I got on stage was probably 84, you know, in college. You know, I did, mm-hmm. uh, I did a, some, a little act with another guy for a little while. And then uh, I went solo probably uh, 85, but I couldn't cut it. Uh, I just couldn't take it. But then when I graduated college in uh, 87, I, I, sort of, I committed my life to it and, uh, and I started making a living one way or the other with comedy in uh, nineteen, you know, late eighty eight. And is there just? I'm always curious about how artists evolve over time. I mean, obviously, you've learned a lot. You've you're you're someone who's been doing it for almost twenty five years knows a lot about the art form. You've been on you, the hours in your body are there. Is there something about what you do today that? Absolutely, has not been lost from like the earlier days. The first time you did it. Yeah, my desire to be heard and seen. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like I was never a guy, never got into it really. I, I, I don't have a career focus. Right. I, I, don't, I, I don't understand show business. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't really. Does anybody, well, I guess some people do. No, yeah. it's, it, it's, it's yeah. political. It's... Uh, a lot of it has to do with, uh, with you know, maintaining um, uh, relationships, yep. uh, with, with nurturing relationships, with uh, understanding how to behave properly in certain situations, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, all things that comics are fundamentally not great at. Pretty much not wired for that. Yeah, and uh, but I just saw. It, I really think my intention for doing comedy, given what I come from, and given uh, that I come from extraordinarily selfish parents, was to to really have some space mm. and to really uh, you know have a voice. Mm-hmm. So my concern was always about you know all I wanted to be 
was somebody with a point of view. Mm. So it was always a struggle to have a point of view on things and to be seen and heard. Yeah. And you know, for a lot of a lot of time early on, I was I was very angry. And I again, I I had no idea. Yeah, I wasn't trying to be anybody else, and mm-hmm. I and I and I loved comedy, and I'm not sure there was a period there where I was just you know angry, and I thought I was angry for certain reasons, and then I realized recently that you know I'm just angry. Uh, so so you know you know where do I point it is is really the issue. So right. then, and then there were years where I was just you know horrendously bitter, mm-hmm. you know, and and I wasn't uh, I shouldn't have been, hmm. and and I chose that disposition, which is not really an appealing disposition. You know, it's very hard to make bitterness entertaining because. <laughs> It's hard yeah. to be around. Well, bitterness is really just amplified self-pity. So yeah. if you're not careful with your anger yeah. and how you place it. And then, you know, over time, I got humbled. You know, I just got humbled. Mm. You know, I had a certain arrogance, but it was uh, it was not based on anything other than fear. And, and ultimately, you know, after my the second wife left mm. and the career didn't pan out, you know, either you're going to pretend like that shit doesn't have an effect <laughs> on you and just be this, you know, walking uh, magnet for catastrophe. Yeah. Or you're going to be like, you know, fucking life is short and it's hard and, and disappointment is, is inevitable and heartbreak is inevitable. And, you know, theoretically we're designed to sort of handle that stuff mm. uh, and process it. So I, I better process it and, and, and take the hit, you know, and get humble. Right. You know, if you're not if you're not going to humble yourself, God damn it, life will humble you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so so my voice is a little different, and you know I uh, you know I'm I, I'm heavy hearted, but not in a in a sad way. Right. And the anger does the anger still fuel what you? No, I, I find that you know beneath the anger there was uh, you know not just sadness but a certain panic. Mm. Yeah, I'm a mm. I'm a very anxious person. I'm a very panicky person. You know, I worry about shit. I build a lot of shit in my head to worry <laughs> about. Like you know, like I I'm angry about things I make up ninety nine percent of the time. So yes. you know, it, my my imagination is fueled by fear. Right. You know, more than anger. I do get angry about things, and and uh, as I've gotten away from you know doing political comedy in and of itself, you know, I find that there are existential things and certain things that reek of, of injustice or, or, or are, are I, I, yeah, I get, I do get angry about things, but I'm not as uh, a baseline angry as I used to be. Do you, uh, besides being seen and heard and obviously wanting to make people laugh, which is uh, an essential part of what you do sometimes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, you know, s- some people want to change the world or people or change people's minds or create some light in people. You know, I, I just saw Bill Hicks documentary and I, I didn't really know Bill Hicks. I knew him a little bit and heard his stuff a little bit, but watched this documentary. And I thought, here's a guy I really wanted to like enlighten people. Like he should have been a preacher actually. I mean, he happened to be a stand-up comedy. He was really good at it, but you know, he may have evolved into a preacher. Um, and you know, and then people, uh, would see my dad and say, Oh, you know, your dad wants to change the world. I'm like, no, actually he really didn't. I mean, I think a part of him maybe did, but that wasn't his intent on stage. I think he wanted to, he wanted to, uh, enable people to look at things differently. Yeah, absolutely. And, and show off that he could look at things differently. A lot of it's showing off. Look how clever I am. Well, that's the same thing. I mean, he he is an entertainer. I'm not going to, to, you know, I'll leave it on you to make the personal judgments. You know, my dad was a show off. You know? <laughs> well, he, I mean, he, but he, he'd even admit it. Sure. I mean, he, he'd say that himself. Sure. I, I just don't think I would ever, I, I think there was a time where I thought that I had an understanding that there's something about the tone of misanthropy and, and, mm. uh, 
progressive politics mm-hmm. that assumes a smarter than than you disposition. Yes. And and I hate that in other people and I hate it in myself. Mm. So I thought, well, this must be fraudulent. If I'm if I hate this about me, mm. why am I doing it? Mm. And and I think that as I've gotten older, uh, I, I think that I like sharing the way I see things. Mm-hmm. And I think there are some jokes I do that I do want to blow minds, mm-hmm. but I want to do it with it with a type of honesty that, that I, I can experience directly. I don't want to do it because I'm saying like, you know, I know this about that and you don't know it. Right, right. And that, you know, this is the way it is because really... For most practical purposes, no one fucking knows the truth. Yep. And 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 even the truth that they think they know is layered. And and to sort of like <laughs> you know carry that burden of of like you know I'm the truth guy. Uh, I always have to ask like, well, but who are you really? Yeah. And and there's a, there's something about that tone that I have a, I have a problem with, and I've really changed my approach to that kind of stuff. And a lot of that had to do with being up to my neck in progressive politics uh, in a very mm. in, a, in a very active way by you know from hosting Air American right. And I was never uh, fundamentally a political comic. I was very a broad stroke guy. I'm not a wonk. Yeah. I don't I don't really know that I understand. You know, when I got the job, I had to get you know the American government for dummies. So I <laughs> I, I, I had some sense about how the branches of government work, right, right. how I legislation worked, and what a bill was, and <laughs> how many senators there were, and you know how to you know with, yeah that kind. Of Stuff. Your little cheat sheet. Uh. Well, I sort of had to learn that. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, I was yeah. not a good student, and and it was not that interesting to me. Yeah. And, and I was a really a I was a knee jerk reactionary politically, mm. and I and I still am to some degree. Though having spent two years doing that and mm. being you know up to my neck with 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 policy and with the with the hypocrisy of the machine. Yep. Uh, I, it was a tremendous lesson, but what I took from that lesson was that, yeah, I'm not even sure we're getting the truth. And here we are on the left and making all these assumptions and speculating that there are a few things that people deserve and, and it'd be nice if they got it. And there's a lot of obstacles to, to that happening on both sides. And, and this is a very slow process that requires a lot of deb- deliberation because of the government that we have. Yep. And also the government really has become this money laundering system uh, <laughs> you know, for, for corporate interests. And that, you know, until that is resolved, uh, I don't think there's a lot of hope for much of anything. Yeah. So I got cynical uh, about being cynical. <laughs> yeah. Which then cancels it out some, yeah, in that, some beautiful way. That's right. There's a little freedom there. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. well, you know what? This isn't my job. Yeah. And my job must be something else. My job must be, how does it feel to be cynical about being cynical? Yeah. And, and we, what is the, the, the existential uh, mm-hmm. reaction to that and the feelings around that? And what are my personal struggles? And am I too selfish? That was the other thing. You know, am I too selfish? Am I too self-involved? The answer is yes. <laughs> but is that not a valid disposition to have? It is my yeah. disposition. And it turns out that most people are like that. And that, you know, whether they're like that because of what they come from or because mm-hmm. our culture encourages it, mm-hmm. you know, that's for them to answer. Mm-hmm. I, it's such a great point. I can so fucking relate to that. Uh, because for me, it's always about okay, I'm human. I don't know what the fuck's going on. And maybe if I talk about it, maybe I'll figure it out. And hey, great. Maybe we can have a conversation about it too. But there's, there's something about that. Um, uh, you use the word special a few times in your book. And I've actually, I wrote an essay about the whole idea of being special and, and the whole, and the whole, oh, that's the selfish word. That's what it was. You know, it's, it's such a, a fucking thing that I, I wrestle with because I do feel selfish. I feel like I'm really maybe privileged because I get to think about shit all day and I get to have a point of view and I get to say to the world, hey, this is what I'm thinking about and this is how I see it or this is how I walked through this experience. And then I think, 
shouldn't I be out trying to save whales or something? You know, it's like, should, is this enough? Am I doing enough? You know, I, this is my whole struggle. Am I doing enough by being this kind of human being, this open book human being and talking about my shit? Is it enough? Is it enough? Well, I think the answer is really, uh, I, I think the key is empathy. And, and, you know, some people, you know, it's easy to talk about and it's easy to, to sort of conceptualize, but either you got it or you don't. Yeah. And, and, and even if you're a good person and your politics are in the right direction, that in, in terms of, of, of you know, being progressive or whatever you're going to choose to be, mm-hmm. it really comes down to, you know, are you able at all to, to be selfless yes. and, 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 and mm-hmm. take that action? And, and I think what, what you're asking, you know, when it comes down to those sort of broader liberal points of like, you know, shouldn't I be recycling more? <laughs> you know, why am I not, uh, you know, why am I wearing fur? Is that what's more important than that is, is that can you get out of yourself enough to help another person? Mm-hmm. I mean, even if it's just you know, simple shit. Yeah. I mean, because that's the thing that we that gets away from all of us. And, and, and sadly, for someone like me, I have to make sure I fucking say thank you. Mm-hmm. I have to make sure I say, you know, I appreciate that or, or that I experience some gratitude in my life or I say, you know, I can help you out with that. It comes second nature to people that may have been parented properly. Right. But, you know, but people... <laughs> But but sadly, yeah, I, people who have who have had to scramble to parent themselves, I get it. Yeah, uh, you know, don't think along those terms. Yeah, uh, and and I think that having a true capacity for empathy, or at least learning it, yeah. or training yourself, which you can, yeah, uh, is probably more helpful to the world than than uh, <laughs> you know you know giving money to Greenpeace on some level. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great point, and and the the whole idea of like healthy narcissism that you know as an artist or anybody who does work, if it's self-expression, uh, it's a narcissistic act because you have to have be in relationship with the self to have something to fucking express, basically. And, you know, I don't know if it's about being a woman or the fact that, you know, I was we were both brought up at the same time during the counterculture, you know, but my my whole thing in my household was, you know, you got to fight for the underdog and you always got to fight. And there was this kind of sense of self-sacrifice talk in my house. And yet my dad was doing the most narcissistic thing in the world was going up on stage and having people cheer him for speaking his thoughts. And it's like, it's such an interesting little miswiring thing for me where I get caught between the whole, uh, the whole healthy nar- and I've had to learn the opposite. So I'm always, you know, giving myself away to others. And I'm now learning in my late forties to be a little more selfish, to actually have the healthy narcissism that I do have the right to stand here and be seen and heard and speak about right. something, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I just find that in, in, I, I don't know, um, in, in certain situations, like I understand that, that comedy is narcissistic, but, but the effect that, that sometimes it has, is that if you can, like what I'm finding with what I'm doing now is just that by vocalizing my own, you know, uh, fears, resentments, you know, hostilities, uh, you know, neurosis, yes. is that I have found that most people, most of their energy goes into getting by, mm. uh, to tr- behaving properly in their lives, you know, at work, uh, in their relationship, trying to do the right thing, which doesn't mean there's, that means usually that there's something screaming inside of them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a lonely place. Yeah. If, if you're alone inside of you screaming or crying, <laughs> And you think that no I'm one there else. often, Mark. Right. But 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 so is a lot of people. Yeah. And and, and I think that, you know, in terms of your father, uh, that the effect that that having you know the stage that he had mm. was that, you know, his heart was in the right place in terms of servicing uh, the truth in terms of how it affects the underdog. I think that if there's one thing to say about about George is that 
he definitely was like, this is bullshit. Yeah. And, and <laughs> that was I, his if, line, right, definitely. If, if there's anything that I can show you <laughs> is that a lot of this is bullshit. Yeah. And either, you know, you're going to hear it or you're not. But I've come to this conclusion. And I need to tell you this right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but I'm going to point this out right now, people. Whereas I tend to be more like, this is bullshit, but I can't seem to stop swimming in it. <laughs> So, you know, <laughs> totally. it, but I, I'm not happy about it. Yeah. You know, I know I'm up to my neck in bullshit, but sometimes I'm, it's comfortable to be in bullshit. But then there are those days where I'm like, get me out of the bullshit. You know, I can't the, the you know, having a hard <laughs> line is a little difficult. Well, and I, this, you know, goes to the thing about, you know, kind of speaking out about these things and doing it in a theatrical way, because we are entertainers and our job is to kind of have a big point about it. And yet, you know, uh, you know, I, I love American Idol. Mm. I, I watch it, mm-hmm. you know, and I and I sign up for whatever the bullshit line is in it that like, oh, these people are getting their dreams. And I really believe that. But at the same time, it's a horrific cultural phenomena at the same yeah. time, you know. Yeah. And so and, and it's I love being someone who can kind of fall into the American culture and go, oh, look, all the shininess and then step away and go. Oh Lord, look! Look at the shininess I just put on my shelf. <laughs> right, but I mean, I understand that. I mean, there, you know, I'm very sensitive and I, I'm easily uh, manipulated. <laughs> yes, me too. And and I and there's, I've really had to sort. I guess I do hold the line. There are certain things I just won't let in my head. Yeah, like if I can, if I have a choice here, not to let that in my head. Right, I'm not going to because I I just can't afford the time to spend an hour crying <laughs> over a guy that's you know put his entire life. And the one song yes, or whatever it is, yes. that, you know, I'm definitely prone to that. And I've had to say, look, you know, I, I'm sorry, but I can't allow that in I, my right. head. I need, I have other work I need to do. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. got enough going on in my head. I'm, I'm manufacturing <laughs> shit daily that, that is filling my head. And even though that would give me relief from my particular uh, uh, assembly line of shit that I have in my head, I, I, I'm going to opt for that. Well, and what's fascinating about it is, you know, even if I let myself buy into it for the hour or whatever it is, once you're in it a little bit, then the slippery slope does happen because then you're like, oh, it's kind of comfortable over well, here. Well, yeah, there's a, I don't believe the bullshit of this sort of ironic, like I'm watching it for the wrong reason. I'm watching it ironically. No, you're not. No, you, no, no you know, I'm not. You know, well, are, those, are those ironic tears? Are you exactly. sitting on your couch ironically cheering on? Am I voting ironically? Yeah, 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 no, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but I do find myself like there is, you know, and, and so there's this constant having to kind of be conscious and wake myself up again. Yeah, right. it's, it's why I call this show Waking from the American Dream, because right. it's like I'm constantly waking myself up going, is this, I mean, none of it's real. It's all illusion. Okay. And I, sometimes I choose my illusions, but sometimes you got to be careful because like uh, the magic powder you talk about in the book, cocaine, I've been there too. You can take a ride for a while on illusion and it, it can really fuck your head up. Oh yeah. There's a, there's a, a lot of uh, monkey wisdom available in <laughs> Three-day cocaine vendors. Oh, yeah. Three days. And it's got to be three days. Look at me. I'm still licking this mirror. (laughs) And uh, there hasn't been coke on it in four hours. Yeah, no. And I'm I'm scraping stuff off the bottom of a drawer that probably is not cocaine. But it was I I stored cocaine in that drawer. So I'm sure there's actually some cocaine somewhere in the thing. Yeah, I had one of these weird moments in that that period. that, that, That section of the book, I spent a lot of time... Uh, sort of putting together because it, it was the comedy store section. Yes. And, it, you know, I was profoundly 
um, uh, you know, co- I was psychotic. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was making big connections and I was hearing voices in my head. Yes, and, you were having a relationship with the St. James Hotel. Yes, there's a, there was a system in place and I didn't know what to do with this information. <laughs> But but there was a moment there where uh, you know I was up at the house doing one of those sort of Manson like three day guitar <laughs> sex benders yes. where we were burning furniture in the fireplace <laughs> up there and there were people coming and going and a woman was there visiting me from Boston who I'd gone to college with and it was like we'd been up for days and she was certainly not had never seen anything like that <laughs> you know and she wrote me this long letter of like you know i don't you know because i had said to her i you know with with a sort of excitement in my voice like no one lives like this man <laughs> you know like we're doing it we're out on the edge and then she wrote me this long letter of of concern and reprimand that sort of ended with her saying i i hate to break it to you but most people wouldn't want to live like that <laughs> I'm like, oh, fuck you, man. You don't know. I haven't eaten in four days. I am God. Yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. Oh, well, we run out of time, sir. Are you serious? I know. I know. I do these like 50 minute shows and I obviously I need two hours for people like you because, uh, well, you know what? Maybe when my book comes out, Mark, I'll come visit you in your garage and we'll have a longer conversation. You got a book coming out? Well, I just went to New York to pitch it. So I'm hoping, uh, yeah, we can fingers talk. crossed. Yeah, we'll work like that, that out. Whatever. It's no, no big come deal. on. Whatever. I want to I have interviews with George Carlin's complete extended family. Well, it's, it's, cousins, it's very small. It's <laughs> my uncle and my cousin and then we're done. Really. Okay. All right. Good. Right. <laughs> I can handle that. <laughs> I swear that'll be it. Uh, so thank you so much for coming by. I really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. I a, had a good time. A, a thrill. And uh, next week we have Wendy Liebman. So there'll be more laughing going on here. You, are you going to have a separate mic for her asides? Uh, you know, maybe we will. <laughs> and I just, I, I want to thank, uh, of course, the, all the people on Twitter who uh, follow me and, and make fun of me all day and, and help me. And all my Facebook friends. And, of course, uh, Barbara Roman and Johnny Dam here, my husband Bob, and all my family. And we're going to end the show with, uh, once again, Tin Pan Band doing a little song called Shake That Thing. And this is the song they were playing, actually. I saw them in the park, by the way. You did? They're yeah. great. Yeah. You, yeah. yeah. Okay. He's like a trombone. Yes! Yeah, yeah, the yeah. trombone guy. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so this is what they were playing in the park when I saw them. Uh, so enjoy this and, uh, uh, as they say, uh, shake that thing.
Hello, I'm Eddie Pepitone, and you're listening to NewDissidentRadio.com. Believe me, it sounds better than it is.